0: The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. From the book of Jonah, the first chapter, through the third chapter, verse 3a. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. But they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord, Out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple." The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according
1: to the word of the Lord. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Morning everyone. It's good to be with you. Uh this week we are starting a 2 week series on Jonah and I've been of our first morning together, Jonah, the world's worst missionary. And since I'm calling out Jonah, I thought I'd call out on myself a little bit. Some of you guys know my wife and I were missionaries in Kenya for two years, and I have a bunch of Rhodes being the worst missionary ever stories. And when I was preparing I actually thought, oh no, I can't I can't do that because I already told that story in a previous sermon. And I went back and looked in the recording and it was a different story of me being a terrible missionary because I have so many of them. So on this particular occasion I had just got done preaching uh, at my church and I was feeling very good, as one does, after preaching, and I was driving home, and in Kenya, the cops are often very corrupt, and so you'll get pulled over to stop, and they'll make up stuff that's wrong. Oh, your headlight is pointed slightly in the wrong direction, or whatever, and they threaten to give you a ticket, and you just sort of stall, and then finally they leave you alone. So this guy says, oh, your tires, are they do not have sufficient tread. And I was like, yeah, I heard that story before. So we go back and forth and back and forth. And then he actually pulls out a ticket, which I have never seen in 18 months in Kenya. I've been with the police probably every day for 18 months on the, on the road. I've stopped at a police checkpoint. I've never seen a ticket. And he proceeds to write me a ticket that says I actually have to be in court the next day. And I lose my mind. I go ballistic on this guy. I can't remember what I said, but I know it was terrible. Okay, it was terrible. I'm yelling. They're shouting. And then, and then we go our separate ways. And I immediately go, I can't go to court. I've heard horror stories about what happens in court. That's terrible. Ah, but my pastor is Kenyan. And he knows a lot of the police chiefs. So I called Pastor Matuki. Pastor Matuki, can you help me out? Yes, I'll call him. And then I hang up the phone. And then I think, oh, dear God, when my pastor talks to the police chief, he's going to talk about how I treated his officer. And this enormous shame fell like So Monday morning, here I am coming with a written apology. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I treated your officer so poorly. I didn't think that was real. And and, uh, the the police chief looked at me and said, I heard you were coming from church. And I said, officer, it's worse than that. I was the (laughs) preacher. So I know what it's like To be the world's worst missionary And so does Jonah So what we're going to do Is we're going to cover We're going to walk through The story here These first two chapters And we're going to say What does this mean for us So um, we know If you start in Genesis And start reading your Bible From there The first time you meet Jonah Is in 2 Kings 14 And we learn A couple things about Jonah In 2 Kings 14 We learn that Jonah Prophesied When the kings were terrible Okay So Jeroboam uh, was Reigned 41 years in Israel And he did what was evil In the sight of the Lord And yet Second Kings 14 tells us that Jonah was nevertheless given a message of national prosperity. Jonah was told to prophesy that God would expand the borders of Israel even though they were sinful. And on this occasion, Jonah is happy to preach God's prophetic grace to his people despite their sin. And then the word of the Lord comes a second time here in the book of Jonah. And we are told, God says, go and prophesy against Nineveh, that great city, for its evil has come up before me. And Jonah doesn't even respond, he just bolts. He runs the opposite way. He heads to Tarshish, which if you look on a map, you will see is in the polar opposite direction of Nineveh. Jonah runs from Nineveh. But more than running from Nineveh, the narrator tells us three times in ten verses, Jonah ran from the presence of the Lord. Now, why would a prophet do such a thing? Well, what do we know about Nineveh? We know that Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And Assyria was the world's superpower. A huge, enormous nation that had big guns and lots of people and posed an existential threat to Israel, okay? Uh, known for its violence and its wickedness, uh, if you have sort of had some trembling in your heart as you hear about North Korea developing nuclear capabilities that might be able to reach us, and you start thinking, "Man, that's really horrifying." Imagine if North Korea like was like uh, shared a border with us; you would be pretty alarmed, yes? Well, Assyria was North Korea sharing a border with Israel. Uh, This is what the prophet Nahum, elsewhere in the Bible, says about Nineveh. Woe to the bloody city, full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. This is how he describes the city. The crack of the whip, rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, hearse and charging, flashing sword, glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. That's how the prophet describes these folks. They've got a reputation for being violent, treacherous, powerful, committed to plunder. And if Jonah had been a little bit afraid of going to Nineveh, uh, that would be understandable. But if we... Shift to the end of the book, which we'll talk about next week. We're actually told, as we'll go into more detail next Sunday, Jonah's reason for running from the Lord's call is not his fear. It's his unwillingness that God would extend mercy to these people. And to get this, we need to understand that when Jonah receives the word, what he's told is prophesy against this city because their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah is a good enough prophet to know the only reason why God tells you about His judgment is to open the door to your repentance. And even though Jonah is given, like, the equivalent of the nuclear option of prophetic words, go prophesy against them, the wickedness is come up before me, he knows that that opens a door, and if it cracks that door open ever so slightly for the Ninevites to repent and receive God's mercy, he is unwilling to be a part of any such mission. So he runs away. While God uh, doesn't try to engage him in conversation, uh, at this point he just starts making stuff happen. So he hurls a wind upon the sea. Right? And he caused this huge storm. And when the sailors cast lots to figure out, you know, whose fault is it? God makes sure they know it's Jonah's fault. Right? And all the pagans are calling on their gods, all their different national gods the gods of the sea and the wind and the waves and the gods of the sun and apparently all the gods they can think of and it's not working. Right? And then they say to Jonah, What's, what, what about you, man? What's with you? The lots fell on you. And he says, I, he's got this great theology. I am a Hebrew. I I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah knows. I'm the one who worships the God over everything. Created everything and controlled everything. But ironically, I'm running away from Him. Right? Uh, All the pagans are praying. Jonah's not praying. And when they say, well, what should we do? Jonah doesn't say, I don't know, I think I should probably repent and head back to Nineveh, which is what I was supposed to be doing. Instead of doing that, he says, just kill me. right? Just throw me in the sea. He hasn't stopped running yet. He would rather die than embrace this prophetic task. The sailors don't like that, but eventually they realize they have to. They throw him over. The sea calms. The sailors are converted An erratically unexpected act of repentance and faith. And Jonah sinks into the sea when a huge fish, a sea monster, shows up that God appoints, swallows him up, takes him down into the depths. And if you're a good Israelite, you know that the way that the wording here works is to say it's like Jonah is going to the grave. This is as close to death as a person could possibly get. And Jonah hangs out there for three days and finally gets the memo and prays to God... And God rescues him, restores him to the land through the fish, gives him a call the second time, and this time Jonah goes. That's a summary of the first two chapters of Jonah. What does this tell us? Number one, the book of Jonah tells us that the Lord is the great who rules over all creation. The book of Jonah tells us that the Lord is the great king Who rules over all creation This comes out explicitly twice in these two chapters Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew I worship the guy who lives in heaven And created the earth and the sea and everything that's in it And the sailors, when they're about to throw Jonah over They actually say, oh Lord, you have done as you please All of this, they recognize, is you They say, the Lord is the great king Who rules over everything But more than saying it The book of Jonah shows it to us Think about this. Let's let's think about some of these things. Uh, It's the Lord who hurls a great wind and mighty tempest on the sea. It's the Lord who causes the sailors' lots to fall on Jonah. It's the Lord who turns up the volume on the storm when the sailors try to row back and things get worse instead of better. It's the Lord who causes the storm to cease the moment Jonah gets thrown over. It's the Lord who appoints a great fish to swallow him up and preserve his life. In his prayer... Jonah acknowledges that it was God who cast him into the depths. Not the sailors, it was God, Jonah says. And it wasn't just into an ocean, it was God's ocean. Jonah says, it's the Lord's waves and billows that pass over him. And Jonah acknowledges that it's the Lord who brings him back from this watery depth. The message is hammered in over and over again. God is the king over all things, who rules the world as he will. And this message that God is the creator over everything is particularly startling given what Israel and the people around Israel often thought. You can tell, for instance, from the sailors that they've got a lot of gods, right? That each man called to his gods. When they go to Jonah, they say, Call to your God. Which one is he, by the way? Is he, I don't know, perhaps the God of the ocean? We could really use the God of the ocean at this point, right? And part of the thing that's going on there is pagans believed that each nation had its own gods, but then different parts of creation had their own gods too. So you need to, you know, maybe there's a wind god, and there's certainly a sun god, and there's a water god, right? So to find out that there's one god who created everything, and who has utter control over all of it is an astounding reminder to Israel and to us. And it's particularly shocking if you were one of Israel's neighbors or even in Israel hearing this story to think about how much this story plays out on the ocean. Because the ocean for the average Israelite or one of Israel's neighbors was a particularly scary place. See, when the neighbors around Israel said, how did the world begin? They told stories like, we have this God... And he had to do this huge battle to create the world. And the thing that he had to battle with was the sea. He had to battle with the sea. And the sea is really scary because the sea has all these crazy sea monsters in it. Okay, So if every once in a while you hear about Leviathan in the Old Testament, that's typically talking about these legends in Israel's neighborhood, about these horrifying sea monsters. So in the mind of the average Israelite, the sea still represented this sort of scary place filled with terrifying creatures, you know from the beginning of time, haunting the waves. And Jonah, the book of Jonah, gives us a picture where the sea monster is not only created by God, not only totally within His control, but is the vehicle of the Lord's salvation of His people. You cannot be told any more clearly that God is the King who rules over everything than to be told that even the sea monsters who lurk in the dark do His will at his command first thing we see God God is the king he rules over everything but the second thing we see is that the Lord rules the way that he rules sorry sorry I got a great quote I got a great quote I skipped it I want to go back to that quote no okay sorry here's the quote Back on the first point. This is from Jack Sasson. Like a general marshaling his troops on familiar terrain, God directs his creations to intrude into human affairs. Having previously roused the winds into churning the sea, this time he summons a creature from the watery depths and moves it into instant obedience. Soon enough, in chapters 3 and 4, there will likewise be plants, insects, and hot winds to obey the Lord's call unhesitatingly. The Lord is indeed the God of heaven. The maker of the sea and dry land as well. So, God is the king who rules over all things. But number two, the Lord rules the way he rules in order to invite all to salvation. Lord rules the way He rules to invite all to salvation. Think about it. If you know the story of Jonah as a whole, we know these crazy pagan sailors with all their gods come to faith. We're going to find out next week that the Ninevites with all their violence and wickedness come to faith. And even Jonah, this terrible... this horrible missionary, is restored to faith through what God does in the story. God is marshalling all creation to the end of saving whoever will receive Him. The purpose of God's rule in Jonah is not condemnation, but salvation for all who will receive Him. And that's good news, that the King who rules over everything is not out to get them, but it's out to find them and seek them. Let's think about the pagan sailors. These guys are pagans. They worship all these other gods. If you're a good Israelite, you know you're not supposed to do that. Right? There's all sorts of stuff in the in the Old Testament about how stupid it is to worship the other gods. And here you've got a boat full of people who are stupid enough to worship all the other gods. And the story's not even really about them. They're like side characters. And yet God so orchestrates His plan in this story that even they... Are confronted with a God who is bigger than all of their imaginings and better is willing to save them, is willing to welcome them. And at the end of the story, they are doing, they've got all the signs of faith. They fear the Lord, they're making sacrifices, they're making vows. They even know his name, Yahweh, which is the special name of Israel, now on the tongues of these pagans. God orchestrates his story to offer salvation to everybody, including these pagans. And if you are here, and you do not know this God that we're talking about, and maybe your life feels pretty stormy, and maybe you don't know which God or which religion or which strategy or which philosophy to turn to, and you've tried a lot of them. And maybe you've tried doing it on your own and just paddling back to the beach. And maybe you look at some of us and we're kind of like Jonah. And you're like, if that's what your people are like, I'm not really sure I'm into that. Jonah confronts us and calls us to look past all of that and to find a God who is committed to finding us. This God wants to welcome you into his kingdom. This God wants to bring you to faith. This God, we find out later, didn't just send Jonah to bring repentance. He sent his only beloved son that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. That is offered to you no matter how pagan you are, no matter how many gods you've tried, no matter how many bad experiences you've had with the church. That's offered to you this morning. Receive it. The good news is there is a king on the throne in control of everything. And he is out to welcome you. But think also about Jonah. Jonah. Yahweh is also out to save Jonah, who is the worst missionary ever. Like, hashtag worst missionary ever. Like, www.worstmissionary.org. Okay? This guy is awful. He is terrible. Think about it. Think about who follows God in the book of Jonah. Sea monsters, storms, waves, pagans. Every single human, non-human, animal character in this book does what God wants him to do, except for Jonah, who's one of the chosen people, who's a leader among the chosen he's a prophet, God's word is in his ear, and he's the only idiot in the book. Do you think Jonah might be saying something to some of us, who aren't those pagans? Jonah needs to be rescued. How do we see that? Well, first of all, he literally needs to be rescued. He asked these pagans to kill him. And God loves Jonah so much, he won't let it happen. God inserts himself into Jonah's suicide attempt. To rescue him against himself because he loves him. And when Jonah turns and prays, he knows it. You brought my life up from the pit, O Lord. There's another way of saying, you brought me back from death. Jonah's life is saved by God. God restores Jonah to his presence. Remember, three times we're told, what is Jonah running away from? It's not really Nineveh. It's God. But Jonah says, my prayer has reached you and I will be with you in your temple. Which represents the special place of God's presence. God is restoring his prophet to a relationship with him, to presence with him. God saves his life. God restores his presence with God more, the Lord rescues Jonah from himself. And to get this, we have to recognize that um, Jonah's not exactly a reliable narrator. We can't always take what he says at face value. Okay, so at the climax of Jonah's prayer, his beautiful prayer, he states this beautiful thing. He says, uh, those who pay regard to vain idols, to worthless nothings, forsake the hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And here, Amen. Here, Jonah draws a contrast between those people who cling to their idols and turn from God's faithfulness and those people who willingly worship God. And Jonah puts himself in this category. Which is really ironic. Because he's the only person in the story It's taken this long to get it. In fact, when a good Jewish prophet talked about those pagans, who do you think he was thinking about? He's probably thinking about the sailors. Right? They were worshipping all those gods. They cling to those vain idols. What Jonah doesn't know is that they started worshipping God way back there in chapter 1. And it took him three days in a fish to come to his senses. He thought the prodigal son was stupid. Meet this guy. So Jonah realizes... That That God's steadfast love is available to any who will give up their idols, but he's having a hard time recognizing that he has had an idol problem himself. Doug Stewart says the sailors are willing to do whatever Yahweh wants as soon as they can figure out what it is. Jonah knows from the very beginning, but tries to escape it. He would rather live in exile or even die than bring favor to Assyrians. What God wants, Jonah cannot stand to be a part of. This is a picture of the people of God clinging to their vain idols. See, Jonah doesn't worship the Lord of heaven and earth who sends steadfast love to all who fear him. Jonah wants to worship the Lord of heaven and earth who's nice to us and me and mine. But he's got bigotries in his heart about people over there and he's got unforgiveness in his heart about people who've hurt me and mine and he's got theological commitments that don't fit with the God above that theology and he is unwilling to give them up and he would rather die than give them up and embrace the clear call of God in his life if that's not idolatry I don't know what is And the crazy thing is, clinging to worthless nothings, like Jonah's nationalist religion, forfeits the the steadfast love that could be his. Now what you need to know about steadfast love, that word there is one of the primary characteristics of God in the Old Testament. And it means that God's orientation towards you is committed, loving, kindness. He loves you with all of His heart. But He's also committed to you with all of His will. He offers to be there for you. The orientation of God to humanity is love and kindness and grace. It's it's his His fixed, in a fixed way, He's disposed to people to care about them. Can you imagine that? God is not up there waiting for you to screw up. He's not delighting to throw lightning bolts at you. Everything in the story is about His fixed commitment to lovingly woo His people. And you can miss it. You can miss it. Whether you're the pagan on the boat or the prophet in the monster. You can miss it if you cling to your worthless idolatries. See, what Jonah is beginning to realize but doesn't get yet is that mission, God has called Jonah in mission to cure him of his idolatry. God has called him to this prophetic task in part to deal with Jonah's own clinging to worthless idols. Jonah is called to Nineveh because he needs to be called to Nineveh in order to find where he's not worshipping the real God. And he's worshipping a God made in his own Israelite image. Now, that brings us to the last way that we see God saving Jonah, which is God saving Jonah by restoring him, him to his job as prophet. The story ends not with Jonah repentant and like forgiven and God moving on to a better person to do the, you know, Nineveh thing. Right? Salvation isn't just forgiveness, folks. It's restoration to the work that God has called us to do. And God is not content with simply ridding Jonah's heart of idolatry. He wants to restore Jonah to his task as prophet. The suffering painful, idol-eroding journey that G- Jonah is on is the process of healing and restoration to mission, leaving Jonah better equipped and increasingly willing to reject his own idolatry and embrace God's prophetic task for his life. And this is scary news for us. Because, you know, we're in a church where a lot of people feel like we're on mission. And that's one of the great things about being in this congregation. And I'm not just talking about people, um, I'm talking about people like Mark and Gina who who are literally called to go on mission, And we've got that all the way to people in their everyday lives and careers and neighborhoods and families and their business and in their work who know God has called me to participate in what He's doing. We had 50 some odd teachers up here last week. A third of this church are teachers, right? So we're a congregation that knows that we're supposed to be on mission. But the danger is that we forget that that in no way means that we've got what it takes to do the mission. In fact... God may have called us all to mission because we're so idolatrous and He knows the only way to deal with it is to get us on unsolid ground where we're off our toes and where He can teach us something that we're not going to learn any other way. Maybe God called you into the classroom or into the nonprofit, or into that business or to witness to Jesus on your street because you're terrible! <laughs> like me. And like Jonah. And you don't even see it! And the problem is, folks, the problem is, folks, that when we cling to those vain idols, it isn't just bad for us, it's bad for those around us. Uh, 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 Our idolatry on mission hurts people. Real people get hurt in the process. Uh, Richard Bush sent me this quote at like 11.45 last night. Always nice thing to do the preacher, to send a sermon-altering quote at 15 minutes before midnight, wherever you are, Richard. Uh, But it's brilliant. This is Jacques Ellul. He says, The tragic thing here, however, is that if conditions cease to be normal, this storm and all this craziness, it's not the fault of the sailors, the pagans. It's the fault of the Christian who had sailed with them. It's because of Him that the situation is such that their knowledge and tradition of the sailors can do no more. We have to realize once again that this is how it usually is with the world. The storm is unleashed because of the unfaithfulness of the church and of His people. And here's how we see it right there off the page in Jonah. Jonah had called, uh, God had called Jonah to preach against the evil of that great city. But same word for evil, the sailors recognize Jonah has brought on them. What have you done to bring this evil on top of us? Instead of being a minister of mercy in the face of evil to others, he's been the minister of evil to the innocent. And I know this is something of a detour, but I can't help thinking as we wake up on Sunday morning with these events in Charlottesville that have been going on. And this morning, as I tried to process I had two thoughts. One is, when I looked at the pictures of crowds of, of white people uh, dressed militantly, carrying torches at night in the South, and then of leg- legitimately neo-Nazi Ku Klux Klan... Alt-right crowds surrounded by militiamen, voluntary militiamen in fatigues, army gear, with AK-47s, not being arrested, not being challenged, that's legal apparently. I saw those images, I thought two things. One is, dear God, what would it be like to be black in this country? What would it be like to be a Jew in this country when people are out chanting with torches saying, uh, we won't let you Jewish out of here, as they did on Friday night? And I just want to say to you that if you're a minority, I am so sorry that this is the world that we live in. And I'm so sorry for all of our part in it. I cannot imagine the fear and terror and just emotional horribleness that it brings up to see those images, even from afar, given the history of our communities. I'm so sorry. We, I just can't even imagine. And the second thing that I thought is that is it not the case that part of the reason for the storm, the racist, classist, bigoted storm that we live in is not part of the blame to be on those of us Christians who've been called into mission and have clung to idolatries on the way. Have we not? Participated in bringing this storm because we were called to bring, be carriers of blessings and we clung to our idolatry and so we brought curses instead. Do we not carry part of the crime for what's going on, the terrorism in our world because we tried to serve God but we're idolaters at heart? And what is it going to take? How many storms and ships and sea monsters will it take for us to allow the call of God to mission, to transform our hearts? Think about me in that police station. I went to Kenya because I thought I was a great guy. I went to be a missionary because I thought I really loved people. And then I'm in mission realizing, oh my gosh. I am so rage-filled and bigoted and self-consumed. And it peels back the layers. And I've been a minister of curses instead of blessings. This call to mission, I clung to idols instead. The good news is, God calls us a mission to make us more like himself. To cure us of those idolatries. The bad news is, when we resist, it's bad news for everyone. Us and those around us. And so if you're here and you're a believer, you're one of the Jonas. There's only two options, by the way. You're a pagan or you're a Jonah. So if you're not a pagan and you're a Jonah and you're called into mission, what idolatries are we clinging to that we're not being honest about? What is God trying to cure us of? Where have we not forgiven our brother or sister in our heart, even interpersonally? Where have we said, if God calls me into that sort of financial risk, I'm not going to do it? I just, I'm unwilling. Where have we said, uh, this cultural thing for me is too important? I can't give that. Where are we in any way clinging to anything but Jesus and His unmerited grace calling and equipping us for a mission? And how many sea monsters is it going to take? How do we allow God's call on our life to purge us purge us as somebody prayed this morning to purge us of our idolatry and restore us to God's purposes on our life Uh, When I started preparing the sermon, and I I left the title in there uh, for this rhetorical flourish here at the end, uh, I wanted to call it, and I did call it, uh, Jonah, the story of the world's worst missionary. But that's actually not quite right. Jonah is the world's worst missionary, but he's a sideshow to the main event. The book of Jonah is the story of the world's great God. The book of Jonah is a story of a God who is relentless in marshalling all of creation to welcome all and sundry to salvation in Him. It is about a God of loving kindness and mercy beyond all imagining who will not give up on His mission to call a people on mission of blessing and mercy and grace. God was willing to move heaven and earth to save his own wretched missionary, missionary and some sailors in the process, and God is still working in that way today. And the good news, the good news, folks, is that we don't end with Jonah in the story of the Bible. God sent Jonah to bring repentance on Nineveh. God sent his son Jesus to bring salvation to all who call on his name. God chased Jonah into the belly of a fish. God became man and willingly entered the belly of the grave. Not because He clung to His idolatry, but because you and I clung to ours. And that Jesus offers us His very blood and body to cleanse us of the idols of our heart and restore us to the work He has always intended for us. And so, as we close, I want to ask you, whether you... Or the pagan on the boat? Or the prophet and the fish? Will you hear Jesus' call? Will we hear Jesus' call? Will we accept Him to rescue us, to restore us, to save us from sin, to renew us in mission, to clean out the idolatries of our hearts, and to be the people that He has called us to be? May He do that work in your heart and mine. Father, I thank You for Your immeasurable, gracious love that comes at us from the very first words of Scripture. You graciously created a world that You continue to rule over even though we have rebelled against You. And You rule over it not to smite us like we deserve. Lovingly, persistently call us back to You. God, do the work by Your Spirit right now to call those who don't know You in this room to saving faith in You, to call those of us who've got unacknowledged idolatries in our hearts like me to repent and put them down. Lord, we pray that You'd work by Your Spirit to do a new thing in this room that is beyond and above any of us. We depend totally on You, Jesus, to do the work that You've been doing from the very beginning and that You did with Your prophet Jonah. May it be among us, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.